those of you who don't know me, my name's Hannah. I'm just going to be reading our verse today. Um, we're going to be reading John 20:19 20, through 23. On the evening of that very first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone has sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Awesome. Thanks so much. So I want to ask uh, just a question as we jump into things today. I want you to think about a moment in your life when you come to the end of a TV series that you have really enjoyed. So I'm guessing that there's some of us in the house today who have had that moment. Or you get to the end of a book and you're like, that's it? Like I thought... Like, can there be, can we add more chapters? And then you have this question, like, well, like, what do I do now? I've, I've spent all this time watching this TV show, and it's over. And so what do I do? Or I'm at the end of this book, and what do I do with all of this time that I've invested in this show or in this book? Anybody in the house been in that moment before? Yes. And I need to tell you that in John chapter 20 the disciples find themselves in that moment too. Like, what do we do now? There's three, we can call them episodes in John chapter 20. So if you're new to the Bible, or it's been a while since you have dug into it, let me tell you what happens in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, Jesus defeats sin and death and hell, and he is resurrected. And early in the morning, we hear this woman named Mary Magdalene. Like early, early, early. Like earlier than most of us wake up in the morning. Like before sunlight early. And she goes to the tomb. And what she's expecting to find is the body of Jesus in the tomb. And that's not what she finds. She finds that the stone has been rolled away. And there's no body in this tomb. And so she runs to get the disciples. Like you've been in that moment, something crazy happens and you just got to tell somebody. Like who's the first person that you call? Who's the first person that you send a text to? Oh my gosh, did you hear? And she goes and she finds two of Jesus' closest friends, his disciples. One man named Peter and another man named John. And there's some exciting news. And so they take off running to the tomb. And it's funny, you know, in the Gospel of John, John tells us twice that Peter was slow. If you kind of read through the text, you'll notice that about who got there first and who was behind. So the moral of that story is like 10-year-old boys never grow up. That's just sort of where that is. Like we're always in some kind of competition on who got there first. And they get there and John tells us that John got to the tomb and then Peter got there. 
And they realize the same thing. And so they take off away from the tomb and they go home. Like they go back to their homes, the text says. That's kind of the, the first episode that we see in John chapter 20. But then there's another episode. Mary goes back to the tomb and she has this encounter with the risen Lord, with Jesus. Like she's weeping outside of the tomb. And Mary hears this voice, and it's not really a super familiar voice. It, she thinks it's somebody who's working in that area. She thinks it's the, a gardener whose job it was to take care of the surroundings of this tomb. And they have this conversation. And Jesus says to her, like, hey, like, go and tell my brothers. Like, go and tell people what has just happened. And so Mary, this incredible figure in the biblical narrative, gets to be the first to tell the good news of the risen Jesus. And it's so powerful. Those are the first two episodes in John chapter 20, but there's a third episode. And this happens much later in the evening. And the disciples are in a private room somewhere. And the door is locked, the scripture tells us. And I think they're wrestling with this question, what do we do now? Like, what's our next steps? And I think they're gripped with fear. I think they're filled with worry. I think they're overcome with uncertainty. And they're in that private room. They're in that place. I think because they have been in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you can rewind the book of John from chapter 20 to chapter 18, you'll see Jesus in the last hours of his life, and he gathers those who are closest to him. And they go and they pray. And he says, hey, like, you stay here. I'm going to go spend some time with the Father. Try not to fall asleep. They end up falling asleep. Spoiler alert. And he gets done praying. And then all of a sudden, there's this group of Roman soldiers that take over the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter pulls out a sword. The text tells us that there he had a sword. So I don't really know if that was like, everybody has that friend, I guess, who's just kind of ready for battle. And he takes out a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear, a guy named Malchus. Uh, Malchus, we know, is like the servant of the high priest or one of the priests that's there. And Jesus heals his ear, and I have so many questions. Like, did it get foot pack on, like, perfectly? Or was it always, like, a little bit off, like, throughout his life? Like, hey, Uncle Malka, show us your ear. That's a little crooked, right? I have no idea how all of that happened. But it shows in that moment, like, who's really king? Who's really Lord? Who's really in charge? And I'm, Peter, I'm not going to let you take this thing off the rails. So you're going to heal in, in this moment. And... The disciples then have been in this place of deep grief and loss because then after that, Jesus is taken away from them. Like he's arrested and he's brought before all of the 
governing authorities, and he is put to death on a cross. And it's been quite a day. It's been quite a day. Jesus has been alive now for like 15 hours. So early, early in the morning, Mary finds out that there's nobody in the tomb. She goes and gets the disciples, and they come and check it out. And now they're locked in this room together, trying to figure out what the next step is. I think they're trying to figure out, how do we get out of this town? Because we just saw what Rome did to our Lord. And so what is Rome going to do to us? We saw the power that was exerted against our Lord. What are the ways in which Rome's going to take that power and exert it against us? I think the disciples, if they were here today, they would look at you in the face and they would say, we're in the upper room, we're in a private room, we're somewhere with the door locked because we've been in Gethsemane, because we know how dark and painful and sad Gethsemane is. But do you know what I love about what they're doing? They're gathering not in isolation, but they're gathering in community. Like they didn't just splinter, they didn't just scatter. They didn't just run off somewhere. And can I just tell you, I think that's informative for us. Because guess what? Like we're going to have Gethsemane moments. And we're going to have a choice about what we do after Gethsemane. And I think we're going to find ourselves in some locked rooms because we're not sure what to do now. But it's so powerful that the scriptures give us a evidence of the disciples gathering together. Like, we're going to figure this out together. It's not going to be on my own that I'm going to be able to make sense of this. And then Jesus, he enters the room. I have a million questions. John doesn't say, Jesus knocked. Like, that would be a surprise. It doesn't say that he opened the door. What does it say? He appeared. And he says, peace. And the disciples are like, ah, right? I have no idea. Shalom. And he ends up saying that same thing three times in this discourse. He says it in verse 19. He says peace to them. He says it again in verse 21. And then in the discourse we're going to look at next week, he says it again in verse 26. Peace to you. So why three times? If you go back to John 14, 27, we find these words, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled or afraid. And then in verse 20, Jesus is showing, him, showing the disciples the evidence of his suffering, like his wounds, like the scars in his hands and in his side. And don't miss this, that after the resurrection, Jesus has wounds. It's not that after the resurrection, like his body is completely healed, it's completely perfect. And so even after we have experienced from God amazing grace, saving grace, incredible new life, turns out we're still going to walk around with wounds. Because Jesus did. And so he kind of shows all the disciples all of those wounds. And I think he's wanting them to understand, like, hey, this thing is far from over. 
Like, I know you are ready to pack it all up, and you're ready to go back home, and you were ready to go back to your old job, your old way of life, your old way of thinking. Surprise. This isn't over yet. There's more to be done. But can I tell you, then it gets sort of weird. As if that was normal, that was sort of typical, that was like on the, the scale of weird and awkward too. Jesus is going to turn up the scale of the weird and the awkward. In verse 22, he breathes on them. Again, I have many questions about this. Like individually, does he breathe on them? Does he go to each disciple and like, how close is he away from them? Or is he just like breathing in their presence? Like I don't really know how all of that worked out. And honestly, if I'm a disciple, I'm like, something happened to Jesus in that tomb. Because something happened to my Jesus. Because he was not doing that before, and he's resurrected, and now he's breathing on us, and it's super weird. And Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I need to tell you that Jesus has done a lot of talking and teaching about the Holy Spirit. Like he's told them that, hey, uh, an advocate is coming, and the advocate is going to lead you and guide you into all truth. So don't be afraid. Like there's one that is coming, is going to walk alongside of you. It's going to give you wisdom and power to do all of the things that you have been called to do. But Jesus isn't really doing teaching in this moment. He is giving them the Spirit. And there's a couple of things that the Spirit is not going to do in the lives of the disciples. Like Jesus doesn't give them the Spirit so that they can go and have amazing spiritual experiences, although that's going to be part of it. Like Peter himself is going to experience a moment like his first sermon ever, an incredibly large number of people come to faith in Jesus. And they're going to heal people. And God's going to show up in incredible ways. But that's not the point of the Spirit. So that they would go and have incredible spiritual experiences. He doesn't give them the Spirit so that they can have like an upgrade in their status. It's like the moment you're getting ready to get on an airplane and then you hear somebody call from the front desk that you can like go and like upgrade your status if you're willing there's an open seat. This is not what's happening with the Spirit. It's not to set them apart as religiously elite. But then why does he give the Spirit? He gives the Spirit so that they would do in and for the world what Jesus has already been doing for Israel. Verse 21 says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And can I just tell you today that there is a huge difference between something being accomplished and something being implemented. There's a huge difference. Like think of the, the composer who spends all of this time like writing. Can you imagine like writing the music for a movie? Like how much work that must take. And you're writing all of these different parts. And some of you are like, well, I thought a computer did that. No, a person does that. Because you can have all of that composed. 
but you need people to play those notes for that music to be enjoyed. Like it's one thing to accomplish something, but it's another thing entirely to implement it. And I think what every person has to answer and what every church has to answer is this question. Like, am I implementing what God has accomplished? Like, am I putting flesh on the victory that Jesus has come to bring? Like, am I living out his words that have been spoken to me and spoken over the earth? Jesus wants to say, you implement what I have accomplished, how? Through the Spirit. Like, through the breath. That's how you are going to be empowered and enabled to do just that. And John, I think, in this moment wants to take us back. So Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. And if we will remember, God joins them walking in the garden in when? In the cool of the evening. And there's a breath that is now flowing in this upper room. So instead of this wind in the Garden of Eden, it is now filling this room and, feel, and filling these people. But then in Genesis chapter 2, what do we find? We find a God who is breathing the breath of life into those first human beings. God breathed into the nostrils of the first humans the breath of life, making them alive with the life of God. But then now in the new creation, the restoring life of God is breathed out through Jesus, and the result is peace. I want to invite the band up this morning as we close this morning. I want you to, for a moment, place yourself in that room when the door's been locked, I want you to consider a time in your own life when you've chosen that, when you've stood in Gethsemane and you have run for the upper room. And there's been fear and there's been worry and there's been heartache and there's been pain. And Jesus enters that space and he speaks a word of peace and a word of life. And what's interesting, I think, as you keep reading in this passage, like forgiveness comes up. And it's sort of like that guest who arrives at the party and you're like, I'm not sure I invited that person. But they were with this other person who got invited and so like, they show up and you're not going to be rude and mean and be like, I don't think I invited you. Like forgiveness kind of like shows up. Because what does Jesus say? If you forgive, he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Seems like Jesus is like driving the minivan and he takes like a real sharp left turn after the whole breathing thing. And he wants to, now he wants to talk about forgiveness. Well, what in the world does forgiveness have to do with anything? 
Like, isn't it so powerful that the first thing that Jesus wants to talk to his disciples about is the fact that they are going to need to forgive other people. And they're going to need to be forgiven. Those are the first words. He says, peace. He says, receive. And then he says, forgive. I think forgiveness becomes the way that what God accomplished gets implemented. So you say, what? Well, how do I implement what God has made possible? I think you implement what God has made possible through forgiving the person that you don't want to forgive. I think it gets implemented through you forgiving yourself for things that you know that you have done wrong mistakes that you have made. And what happens in resurrection is that forgiveness gets to be the marinade in which resurrection spends time. And of course, there's still wounds after the resurrection. Like Jesus still has wounds. We still have wounds. But I just wonder this morning, like as you think about, I don't know, the last six months of your life, like is there a way in which you have not implemented what God has accomplished in the context of forgiveness? Is there someone that you know that like you need to forgive? As a way to share the love and the victory that Jesus has made possible on the cross for you and for me and for everybody seated here. And I just want you to think about like how Peter's feeling in this moment. If you're new to the Bible, you might not know the, some of the mistakes that Peter's made leading up to this moment. And he denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. I know we've, many of us have been in that moment for me it's in algebra 2 when the teacher is asking what the answer is and I just got my head down because I'm really thinking about it really hard like don't call on me Mr. Mayor I'm just gonna hang out right here just praying you know I can imagine like what's going on in Peter's world and like the question that Peter is like oh my gosh like is this for me like does this apply to me too because I like walked away from Jesus, like not on like a Tuesday morning in traffic or when I was like telling a story that wasn't totally true. No, I walked away from Jesus in the moment of his greatest suffering. And I had an opportunity to, to live for him in that moment, but I chose to walk away. And I don't think John wants us to miss that. And I don't think John is picking on Peter, although it seems like it earlier with the running thing. But that's not what he's doing. I think he's wanting to highlight the power of forgiveness. And what the Spirit actually enables us to do. And the way that it forms us in our lives as followers of Jesus. And so what I'm going to do this morning... We didn't talk about this, but I'm going to just have like the band just play um, a little bit. And I'm just going to leave some quiet space for you to consider this this morning. You could ask God that he would give you a face of someone that you 
need to forgive so that you can implement what he's accomplished. And it's very possible in the room that it's your face. But it's silly if we're going to celebrate Easter and then we're going to just keep on moving past this and we're going to celebrate resurrection, but we're never going to talk about wounds. We're never going to talk about the, the way of Jesus as difficult and as painful and as our need for spirit-empowered life. And I think you're never going to need the spirit more than when you're faced with the choice to forgive. You're never going to be more tempted for that body to stay in the tomb than when you're faced with the choice to forgive. Never going to be more tempted to leave Jesus' words at just words than when you're faced with the choice uh, to forgive. And so I'm going to ask Caleb just to play a little bit. I'm going to pray for us and then just leave some quiet space. And then when you feel like you want to lead us in that song, go ahead. Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your mercy and your love and your incredible forgiveness for your breath that you have given to those first humans the breath of life, filling them with your life. And for all of the moments since then when that's what you have shown up to do, is to breathe on your people and breathe within your people so that they would be empowered to live out of that breath in the world. So God, I want to pray just a prayer of openness in this room this morning, God, that we would be open to that person that we know we are being called to forgive, but it's hard, it's messy, it's difficult. God, we want to be a people that live out of what has been done for us. We want to be a resurrection people, not just in our own lives, but we want to see resurrection in the lives of others. And we want to be a people that are open to that, that are open to extending that which we have received. And so God, in these moments, I pray that you would speak over these incredible people who are seated here this morning. We trust you in this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray.